Welcome to Tales from the Heart. In this episode, we are going to be sharing a patient story of somebody living with HCM. Quite an extraordinary story. Debbie, thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's Heart Month still as we're recording this. So we're really trying to amplify HCM awareness and get these stories out there. But I want to start by asking you, why do you want to share your story today? I don't want other people to go through what I have been going through on this journey, plain and simple. You have had quite an extraordinary run. Those of us in the HCM community have been following you very closely. You are always one who gets our attention and we don't like to do that when you have HCM. You want to be kind of boring, but Debbie, honey, you've been anything but boring. So let's let's figure out first, who's Debbie? Tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, I'm a Navy brat. I moved all over the place when I was growing up. To be in one place for a year was a luxury until my dad retired in 73. And then we were able to stay in one place for, for a couple of years. So again, you know, I, I moved around a lot. Eventually... I grew up, I graduated from high school, I started college. My original goal was to be a vet, a veterinarian, because I love animals a heck of a lot more than most people. That didn't work out. I didn't have the money to finish school. But what was really exciting is when I moved out to Virginia the first time, I got involved with an emergency group, uh, so fire and rescue, and I was able to do emergency medicine. And medicine is, I've always been drawn to medicine. So I got to do the emergency medicine and growing up in the seventies, for those of you that are my age, there's a show on called Emergency. Loved it. That was my absolute favorite show in the whole wide world was Emergency. So, you know, I had a crush on Johnny and- Of course. Of course. (laughs) Who Who didn't? (laughs) Who didn't? So it was something that I had wanted to do, but you know, Like I said, going to school and being a vet was my ultimate goal. But I I found I had a niche for emergency medicine. I caught on to all the concepts very easily. I was able to pass all of my tests. I got up. I was working with two units, two areas that were volunteer. They're all volunteer. And so they were paying for my schooling, which was a great bonus for me. But I was able to move up in my education rather quickly. So I went from an EMT basic up to an EMT cardiac tech, which with the proper training is the same level as a paramedic, just didn't have to pay for paramedic school in two years. So I moved up really quickly. And it's really funny because my favorite part of all of that was hearts. I loved, Mm. I know, Mm. I know. Mm. So I I loved doing anything that had anything to do with the hearts. And so I I was able to read EKGs very easily. I had, I worked with a doctor in the ER here in Virginia that was really good at helping teach those of us that were interested in learning. So he helped me understand EKGs better and the things that we could do to treat different heart ailments. I've been in the medical industry for over 40 years. You got your paramedic license Mm -hmm. and you also worked in phlebotomy? Yes. Yep. And you lived in Utah for a while. I did. While you were in Utah, something happened to your heart. 
It did. I was actually on my way to one of my client offices that I was working at that happened to be in the hospital. It was a physician office attached to the hospital. And I felt my heart go into a rapid beat when I got out to my car. And I thought, well, I'll try breaking it because, you know, I put my training to use. (laughs) You know the tricks. Let's see if we can fix ourselves. Okay. Sounds logical. Yeah. Yeah. I got into work and I had tried to fix whatever was going on and it wasn't fixing. It was still rapid. So much so I couldn't count it. So I had a couple of other things I could try once I got into the office. Wasn't too hopeful about it because I kind of at that point knew what was going on. Got into the office, tried my last two Hail Marys, and it did not work. And I eventually ended up in the ER. I was hooked up to the monitor and the doctor walked into the room and he says, what have we got here? And the nurse says, it's VTAC. And I says, no, it isn't. It's rapid AFib because I can't break it. He went up and looked at the monitor and he says, you're right, it's rapid AFib. I said, I know, I couldn't break it. I got admitted, I had the echo done. That's when they discovered my enlarged heart. And at that point, the doctors were blaming me. They said it was my fault. I had had uncontrolled high blood pressure for too long and that is what caused the muscle, muscle thickness. Had you not been checking your blood pressure as somebody in the medical field? Yes, actually, I had to do a biometric screening every year for my job so I could get cheaper rates on my insurance. And I had just had my last biometric screening done, not even, it was like two, six weeks maybe earlier, two months at the most. And um, it was perfectly fine as it had been for the last several years before that, when when we started doing the biometric screening. So I knew that wasn't the case, but none of the doctors were listening to me at all. So my first cardiologist, I actually fired because he wasn't listening to me and he was doing bad things to me and I wouldn't take it. So time progresses, you get another cardiologist, you get an order for an MRI. Yes. And what did that say? Uh, He called me up that that night after the MRI was done, he had told me that it would probably take a week before he got the results, but he called me that night. He called me personally and he says, Debbie, I hate to tell you this, but you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I'm like, what? And I was at the store when he called me. So it was loud behind me and he, English wasn't his first language. He spoke really well and he spoke slowly But sometimes it was still hard to understand him, especially with a lot of stuff going on behind me. So I had to have him repeat it a couple of times. And then when I got home, I jumped on the Internet to try to figure out what the heck this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was, because I had never even heard of it, despite being in the medical world for so many years. Which is frightening in a whole other way, but go ahead. It is. Um, So that's kind of how I stumbled upon the HCMA. And for the first little bit, I didn't really do much of anything except just observe, because I was still reeling with my diagnosis. I had no idea what it meant for me, because like I said, I didn't know anything about it. It's serendipity. I was taking a trip to Utah and I said that on social media. I said, I'm coming to Utah. You're like, I'd like to get together. So we met and we talked, we had a long conversation that night. We did a couple hours, a couple hours. And uh, I had my site visit the next day. 
So uh, we talked about, gee, I wonder what this can look like, what the future of HCM and HCMA would look like and how we're going to grow this thing. That was a whole other part of the conversation, which I see you're wearing your HCM ambassador t-shirt now. Yay. So things have grown and, and we've gotten there, but your journey didn't end with, okay, let's talk about advocacy and awareness. You weren't feeling well yet. No, I wasn't. What happened next in your HCM journey when you got to an HCMA recognized center of excellence? I had the most awesome doctor. I absolutely loved him. He was very upfront with everything because I was obstructed. I knew one step of this journey was going to have to be open heart surgery. And just like everybody else out in the world, nobody wants to have an open heart surgery. So I tried everything to put that off. And I actually had joined two separate trials to put that off as long as possible. The one drug, the perhexaline, actually worked. There was two of us at the center that were on it, and both of us had some positive results. But they got the drug got pulled like the week after I finished my trial, and so we weren't able to get the drug anymore, which really made me sad because <laughs> it was helping. It's interesting because that is the, one of the core components. One of, one of the components of perhexaline was used in the Embrya trial, and they just kind of refashioned it a bit and took away some of the negative consequences of perhexaline and added in some other functionality. And then that just had a good top line readout last fall. People may not be able to get perhexaline soon, but if this other drug goes well, there might be something similar to it coming to market soon. Anyway, what what was the other trial you did? You know, I don't remember. I remember perhexaline because that worked. The other one didn't. And by that time, it, it had gotten really bad. And I was having a hard time even functioning. It took everything I had to get up in the morning, get my shower and get to the car, let alone drive into work and work a full day. So I had that rather difficult conversation with the doctor, Dr. Afshar. We decided that it was time for the open heart, the myectomy. Now we had to decide where I was going to get it done. Looking, looking back since they were such a new center and their surgeon had only done a few myectomies and he did them with uh, Dr. Smadira. Um, I would not have done well having my myectomy through IMC. I was too complicated. I was very complicated even for Dr. Smadira, who has done thousands myectomies. So when I sat down with Dr. Afshar, I said, where would you go? And he says, if you were my sister, And my sister was having this conversation with me. He said, I'd go to Cleveland. I said, okay, thank you. That's what I want to know. That's when I made my appointment with Cleveland so we could get the ball rolling. And six weeks later, I ended up in Cleveland for my septomyectomy. So what year are we in now? This is 2017. This is August 2017. We have our myectomy and we're thinking, I'm done. This is it. This is my destination therapy. Yay. No, I didn't even get to the hotel room before I started, after I was discharged. I was discharged four days later and didn't get to the hotel room before my heart decided it didn't like being messed with. And I went back into rapid AFib with rapid ventricular response. My heart rate was going up over 200 beats a minute. So every time it did that, I would get shocked. My ICD was set to 200. And so I ultimately found out I was shocked 26 times within a half an hour's time frame. Uh, so I ended up back in the in Cleveland, admitted, and I stayed for another 
week so they could introduce Sotolol to help with the arrhythmia issues. And I would have little episodes of that throughout the next six weeks as my heart started to heal and to remodel, but they got less frequent. They had me on high doses of beta blockers still, so my heart rate was low enough that I wasn't getting shocked. And so after about six weeks, I stopped having the rapid AFib and I went on with my life. And that went on for another couple of months until around Thanksgiving that year. And then I had my three-month follow-up with IMC that December, December 8th, I think is when my appointment was. Went in to see him and my EF had dropped from 65, 66 after the myectomy down to 48. So, I mean, kind of explained why I wasn't feeling the best again. Then I went in for a TEE a couple of weeks later and my EF had dropped down to like 41, 42. So it was dropping rather quickly. The bad part was I was moving the 1st of December out here to Virginia. So I will not mention any (coughs) names, but I didn't have the best of luck with any place out here in Virginia. So I went back to Cleveland Clinic and I went back to see Dr. Thamel Larson. And I ultimately started seeing heart failure. At that point, when I went back and saw heart failure for the first time, they wanted he wanted to admit me right then. I wouldn't let him because I had to go back to work the next day. So we worked some things out. Well, I had some testing done. And ultimately what happened was they switched my ICD out for CRTD because my in a good myectomy, the left bundle branch is typically removed. And your heart creates new pathways to make up for that. Mine did not. So my ventricles were not beating in sync, which was causing the drop in my EF. So we were hoping by that point that the CRTD would help by resynchronizing the beats. You said that so eloquently. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, it only worked for a couple of months. Then the PVC started increasing so much so that I ended up having an ablation. I don't recommend that, but we wanted to try other things. I was still seeing heart failure. I was still on the transplant pathway because my heart just was not functioning well, but we were trying to put it off as long as possible. So we did the ablation. We tried that. I was on the table for about 14 hours. He was able, and it was it was horrible. I, he was able to only ablate three areas. He didn't want to go any further because he says, I'll just burn your whole heart up. You won't have a heart to beat. Again, it, it lasted for about a month, but my heart created new scars. So I had more PVCs. By the time I had gotten to transplant, I was in Bigemini and I had been in Bigemini for about six months. Okay. So not all of our listeners know what Bigemini is. Can you explain that? So Bigemini is a normal beat followed by a PVC. So a premature ventricular contraction followed by a normal beat followed by another PVC. It's very uncomfortable. And I was still on beta blockers. So my heart rate was, I was, I still had the CRTD. So I was being paced at 70, but because of the PVCs, it wasn't pacing me because each time the ventricle beat, 
with the PVC, the CRTD didn't work because it said, oh, the ventricles have already contracted. We don't need to do anything. So if you were to look at my heart rate on like a pulse ox or something like that, my heart rate was only 32 to 35. Mm, okay. So you're not feeling so good. No. We've We've cut out part of the muscle. We've burned part of the muscle. We've tried to pace part of the muscle. We are trying everything we've got. And when do you get listed for a transplant? December of 2019. I'm AB positive. Oh, AB. Yeah, so I'm lucky I can receive anybody's. But you waited for a long time. 50 weeks. So I was two weeks shy of a year being on the list. Part of that, I think, had to do with, well, two reasons. Number one, I'm down here in Virginia and I listed in Cleveland. And number two is it was right smack dab in the middle of COVID lockdowns. So I couldn't even go back up to Cleveland. I went up there in January of 2020 and I saw everybody again. And my EF at that point was down to about 23, 22%. I was not able to go back up there again. We had finally got a schedule for me to come back up in December when my year was up, but I wasn't able to go back up there because everything was on lockdown and you couldn't do anything that wasn't an emergency basis. So I went for a year really without being seen. So I that think that was the second reason that it took so long. You're navigating advanced heart failure through COVID and you kept working, didn't you? I did. I worked the day that I got my call. I worked a full day. With an EF of 23. Well, by that time, I'm pretty sure it was lower, but I don't know what it was because I hadn't seen anybody for almost a year. So I want to just take a moment from the patient advocacy point of view to say how disappointed I am in the systems that we've created in the United States. We have somebody who's struggling to survive, but must keep working to keep their benefits so that they could qualify for a transplant when they're working themselves into a grave to try to save their life, but they can't stop working because if they stop working, they lose access to, to healthcare. That's and a little lose, lose being on the list. Uh, yeah. I get taken off crazy. We yeah. need to do better, but that's why we're doing these share your stories. I can talk hypothetically about why we need to change, but if somebody hears your story, I think they're going to go, Oh, yeah, that's bullshit that she had to work all the way up until the day of her transplant with an EF of 23. I, I can remember seeing you on camera and you were ashen. Mm -hmm. like you just had no color in your skin at all. You were really slow in your speech and I could see you were really struggling. I was. And, oh God, what terrible days. So you finally get the call. And why am I remembering this around a Thanksgiving? Were you Thanksgiving? I was. I got the call the day before Thanksgiving. And I went into surgery 11 p.m. Thanksgiving night. Okay. Shout out to the crowds out there who are OR workers who work Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you so thank much. You. Yes. And all the nurses that were on the floor and helped me get ready for it. And yeah, it's the hell of a Thanksgiving. It is. <laughs> it, like I tell people, it gives a whole new meaning to the word Thanksgiving. Absolutely. What Thanksgiving means to me. We share a Thanksgiving transplant story, but I was listed the day before Thanksgiving. I woke up Thanksgiving morning 2016 and wrote a letter to my donor family. And then, what is it, three years later, four years later, three or four years later, 
you're getting your heart on Thanksgiving. I'm not going to say that I wasn't crying that day. There were tears. <laughs> there were happy tears for Debbie and excitement and worry because that's what happens when you go to transplant. You get it all. You get excitement. You, yep. you, you're hopeful, but you're worried and you're scared. Yep. What was it like to get that call? Tell people who don't understand our world. Oh, my gosh. Um well, it, it, it's really funny because I had called. So this was Wednesday, Wednesday evening, about nine o'clock. I had called Monday because I had to the pre-transplant team because I had a question for them that I needed answered. So I just assumed when I saw the number that it was somebody from the pre-transplant team calling me back to answer my question before they everybody went out on vacation. So she started asking me all these questions about COVID. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe they have to do that now because, you know, I hadn't seen anybody for a year. So she kept asking me all these questions and she says, do you know why I'm asking you this? And I said, no, why? I that I just assumed you were calling me back because I called on Monday about something I needed an answer for. And she says, no, we have a heart for you. I said, um, what? <laughs> she said, That's the most common first word after they say it. <laughs> she, says, she says, we have found a heart for you. We just need to know if you will accept it. And she says, Dr. Smadir has already accepted it for you, but we just need you to accept the heart. And I, I know my jaw dropped. I know it did. Um, I couldn't say anything for a couple of minutes. And when we started talking again, she, you know, I said, yes, yes, uh, I'm, uh, yes, because I was getting bad by this point. And she says, all right, well, these are the steps that will be happening. And she explained everything to me. And since, again, I'm down here in Virginia and they're up in Cleveland, they sent the jet down here for me. And I got to say, I recommend flying that way anytime you can. <laughs> That was the best flight ever. I came out here because I had just finished kind of prepping a few things for Thanksgiving the next day. I mean, it wasn't going to be anything big. It was just me and Lou. So it wasn't anything big, but I still needed to to do a few things so it wasn't so hard the next morning. And I came out and Lou was on the phone with his son. And he saw me and he said, what's wrong? What, what's wrong? What's happened? And I said, Cleveland just called. And he says, what do you mean Cleveland just called? He's, I said, they have a heart for me. And it was like, I don't really remember a whole lot after that because everything was kind of rushed and then it wasn't. So then we flew up to Cleveland. We got up there about six o'clock Thanksgiving morning, got admitted. Lou was able to stay with me for a little bit. But once I got the COVID test, he had to leave and I couldn't see anybody. And they came back in and started doing all kinds of tests on me, you know, IVs. Um, they put a art line in. They didn't do the swan or anything at this point, um, but they did as much as they could before going into the OR. And I've, they've, uh, one of the nurses came in a little bit later and she says, we have an OR time. She says, they'll come and get you about 11 o'clock. So I went into the OR and I woke up a couple of days later and I did really well past past that while I was in the hospital. I got discharged 10 days 
after my transplant. I stayed up there for two and a half months. So I was able to utilize their they had a cardiac program. Yes, thank you. Sorry. Not a problem. So I was able to utilize that. And I went there. I did inpatient, which probably wasn't really allowed, but they allowed me to, for uh, two days a week. And I went outpatient three days a week. And I did all of my really close together biopsies and heart casts and stuff like that while I was up there. And then, of course, March came. <laughs> So typically we say, and that was your transplant and yay, you're back to health or, you know, it takes you a good year to recover from transplant, but you had some additional complications. I did. The origins of which are still a bit hazy. You were good until you weren't. Unknown. Um, Yes. I went into my local heart failure clinic here because I hadn't seen him since my transplant. Brenda started seeing me at that point because I was post-transplant now and who is the transplant nurse. And she walked in she did my vitals and she says, this isn't good. I said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I'm sat, this is what I always sat at home and everybody knows this because I have the partially paralyzed left hemidiaphragm. So I've always had low blood pressure or low um, oxygen, but I'm working on it. You know, I've got the exercise to work my lungs, work my diaphragm to hopefully get it back to where it needs to be. So this isn't unknown. And then Dr. Barron walks in and he says, you're not going anywhere. He says, you're going to the ER. He knew me well enough that he knew that I would leave. So he had Brenda take me down to the ER and wouldn't leave. She couldn't leave until I was actually admitted. And quite honestly, I don't remember anything beyond that point. I crashed later that night and I don't remember anything about the month of March. I remember a lot of it because your husband called me and said, this is what's happening. And you were, they had put ECMO on you. So for those who don't know what ECMO is, we're basically removing the blood from Debbie putting it through an external machine to oxygenate it and putting it back into her body. And this is a hardcore last ditch effort to save somebody's life, basically. And um, Dave Barron and I knew each other because he used to be in New Jersey and he's responsible for a number of these scars. on (laughs) Did a couple of my post-transplant biopsies as well. And when Lou called me and he said, this is what happened, Dave Barron intervened and we're getting a plane and we're taking her back to Cleveland. At that moment, I was very sure of one thing. If Dave Barron hadn't moved to Virginia, I don't think I'd be talking to Debbie today because I don't think he would have made it through that night. So having a really competent physician available to you was critical, post-transplant as well as pre-transplant. I can fill in some of the blanks because I talked to Lou the entire way when you flew, he drove to Cleveland. And I think I was on the phone with him for a good hour and a half, two hours that night. And we talked, we had some really tough talks, Debbie. I'm like, Lou, dude, I don't know what's going to happen here. She's she's in uncharted territory. And we sent out a notice to our community and said, Debbie needs your support. Send any healing energy, any prayers, any positive thoughts her way. And you literally had people from around the world praying and thinking on you and loving on you and giving you whatever support they could do. And we knew you were at Cleveland. That has a fantastic advanced heart failure and post-transplant team. And we just waited for your body to decide that it wanted to stay. (laughs) And it did. It did. It did. 
And you've had a couple bumps in the road since then. Yes. But you're back in school. I am back in school. We didn't talk about your love and your obsession. We were going to do that in the beginning. So you like little horses, not regular horses. You like regular horses, but you also love little horses. I do. I do have miniature horses and I do have one that is my pride and joy. Her name is Daisy and she actually was the first horse in the state of Utah to be Pet Partner certified. So Pet Partners is an umbrella organization that certifies pet partner teams to go into hospitals and nursing homes and schools and stuff like that so they can visit with people. So Daisy and I did that for over 20 years. And then Daisy's also a movie star. She is. She is a movie star. She starred in a movie with, it's called Damsel with Robert Pattinson. And I can never pronounce her name. Mia Wachowski, Wazowski. I don't know. I think she played in Cinderella or something like that. But anyway, she starred in the movie with those two. That's a lot of fun. So now you're back in Virginia. I am. With your horses. Yep. And your husband, Lou. Yep. Who you've put through the ringer. I don't mean to. I have rarely seen a caregiver, a spouse, a partner be so dedicated and present as Lou has been. He was very worried about you. And we talked all different concepts and options and things to think about. And he was really worried. He was really worried for you. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad he was able to keep everybody updated with what was going on. Because, you know, obviously I couldn't. Um, and like I said, I still don't know what was what happened. Not totally. There's a lot of stuff. And you know what? You don't need to know. You got through it. <laughs> we got through it. We're fine. Uh, and there were there were so many mini milestone moments in, in that time. And I think if we go back to our Facebook group and we look at the the conversations on it, like, like the littlest updates, like your oxygen was dropped or that you opened your eyes or that you talked to somebody. It was COVID restrictions were still pretty tight. It was hard to be able to spend a lot of time with you for Lou, but we were getting the information out and just, you had such a cheering section. And I appreciate everybody. Thank you so much. Every time we would we would mention you, like like people like know Debbie, like there's this Debbie drama story, and I'm like she doesn't mean it. She's really kind of a chill chick, so like I don't get it. But you had a battle with your heart, but you're still here to tell the story. And you started this podcast by saying I don't want anybody to have to go through what I went through. Right. Looking backwards in your life, your first hospitalization for this rapid rate AFib wasn't really your first cardiac symptom, but you just normalized what you were feeling. Right. And then you got this, you know, know, it's hypertensive heart and you didn't do this and you didn't eat right and you didn't exercise right. It's your fault. Right. It's not, it's genetic. But nobody was willing to look any further. 
So if you have the opportunity to speak to somebody who might notice some symptoms, but they don't want to talk about it because if they talk about it, then they're real, what would you say to them? The only way they're going to know is this is to talk about it and to bring it up with the healthcare provider. And if they don't like, if the answer that they are receiving isn't coinciding with what, what you are feeling, then you need to research further. You need to find another provider until you can get an answer that fits what is happening with you. Second message to other members of the HCM community. You know, we we do recommend HCMA, Recognized Center of Excellence Level Care, for evaluation. What difference did that make to you? When I went in to see Dr. Afshar the first time, and he validated what I was going through as a real experience, I broke down and cried because even my family wasn't listening to me. They didn't understand and they didn't believe me. They believed the doctors because, you know, they're doctors. So you were validated and you got on the right treatment pathway. Yes. So I love that. I love that you got there. I love that you're here today in 2024 to talk to me. Your story is a little unusual for HCM. Like not everybody, only 25% will go to septal reduction therapy and only 5% go to transplant. And just before anybody asks me, a myectomy does not indicate that you will go to transplant. I never had a myectomy. I went to transplant. I was always non-obstructed. Don't put connections out there and don't be afraid to get a myectomy if you need one or other septal reduction therapies. HCM is complicated. These hearts are very involved. If it was an easy disease, there wouldn't be a need for an organization and there wouldn't be a need for special level care. We do need specialty level care. Yeah. You're going to start seeing more commercials on TV about HCM, which is great for awareness. There's new drugs. It, it might have been one that you could have benefited from had it been available at that time, but it wasn't. Myosin inhibitors are coming that might stop some people from having to go to myectomy. We don't know its impact on transplant at this point, but there's new hope. There's new therapies. Gene therapy happened last year for the first time in HCM, waiting yes. for the results of that trial. It's a good time to have a bad disease <laughs> and um, there's more options coming. High-level care is critically important and has saved Debbie's life on more than one occasion now. Yes, definitely. Debbie, thank you so much for sharing your story on Tales from the Heart. We're really happy to have you here in oh so many ways. I've gotten chills like five times since we're talking because it's pretty miraculous that the two of us are sitting here having a conversation. I think so. If you're... If you're one of our transplant buddies, you understand like how cool it is for us to chat together. If you don't, both of us, if not for clinical trials, if not for advances in technology, we would not be talking to you. You would not be hearing our voices. We would be dead. Yep. There's no easy way to put that. I used to say we wouldn't be here anymore. No, we would be dead. Yep. Yeah, I know. Had I not gotten my transplant when I did, I wouldn't have survived 22 at all. I was going downhill very, very quickly. I, my transplant seven years ago last week, I think I could have gotten through maybe 17, but I don't think I would have gotten through 18. In fact, I think I would have died in April of 2000, er, 2018. I had this moment 
in 2018 that was very strange. And it was a dream. And I woke up and I'm like, I think I was going to die today. Is that mm. weird? That's oh. very weird. Wow. Now, see, yeah. that just gave me chills. <laughs> yeah. It, it, was a, it was a very strange dream. I'll tell you the dream. It's a podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. So in my dream, my husband and I were in a car. And we were driving down a road. And we always drive down. And in front of me, it was like black. It was like an oil slick, but it covered everything. Everything was just gone. And I said to my husband, put the car in reverse. So in my dream, we put the car in reverse and we backed up and we did a U-turn and we went up the other way on the road and it was a sunny day. And I feel like if we had driven a little bit further, I would have gone into the abyss. I would have been gone. And I woke up and I'm like, that was a little too real for me. And so I think <laughs> that without a transplant, I would have died in April of 2018. And every, every minute since transplant, you look at the world with a new lens. You do. You do. And you don't sweat the small stuff. Well, still, but not oh. as much. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm, a, I'm over the small stuff. We're going for big stuff. Next week, I'm heading to Capitol Hill to talk to Congress about why we need to do more to diagnose people with HCM and other genetic heart diseases. And I've got... I've got energy, I've got life ahead of me, and I'm going to take every bit of that energy and put it to good use so that someday you don't have to really worry about this diagnosis. It'll be much easier. Yes, indeed. And it takes a village and it takes our ambassadors to share their stories and help raise awareness. So Debbie, thank you for being an HCM ambassador. Thank you for allowing me to be here. And thanks for sharing your story. 